Hey, thanks for sharing, listeners. This is John T. Um, we're back after a couple of weeks break. Uh, Jackie and I have been at the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Conference that happens every year, and we went on an amazing retreat after that to learn more about effective group leadership and um, kind of discovering more about uh, what it is we're here to do with our listeners and with our, our practice. And we're excited to be sharing that with you in coming episodes. Uh, today, we're really excited to bring Maya Salovitz on the show. Um, she wrote the book, The Unbroken Brain, and you're going to hear from her in a minute. Before we get there, we want to remind you that we have our dating and recovery uh, weekend intensive coming up with a big announcement. We've cut the price $1,000. We are offering this at cost um, because we want you to come and have a good experience. Uh, so we're offering it for $995. That includes room. Uh, that includes all meals uh, each day, everything you'll need once you show up at the beautiful Homestead Resort in Midway, Utah. Um, so please, uh, if you're interested, contact us. Uh, we'll spend about 20 minutes on the phone with you, helping you determine if this is the right fit for you right now, um, and helping you connect with this, uh, awesome opportunity to learn more about yourself as a dating person in recovery. So you can find out more about that at onelayerdeeper.com. That's O-N-E layerdeeper.com. Hope you enjoy the show. For sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, the Google Play Store, or on the Podbean app. You can find more Thanks for Sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com/slash healing paths. That's path with an S. Hello, and welcome to the Thanks for Sharing podcast. This is John T. And I'm Jackie P. We are here today. Uh, we're really excited to have on our show the author of The Unbroken Brain and several other books, Maya Solovitz. Hi, Maya. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. We're, we're excited to have you on. I'm just going to read. This is the bio from Maya's website. Uh, she's a very accomplished author and um, researcher, does a lot of writing. Um, Maya is one of the premier American journalists covering addiction and drugs. She's co-author of Born <laughs> for Love and The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog with Dr. Bruce D. Perry. Her book, Help at Any Cost, is the first book-length expose of the tough love business that dominates addiction treatment. She writes for Time.com, Vice, The New York Times, Scientific American Mind, L, Psychology Today, and Mary Claire, among others. So welcome, Maya. Glad to be here. Yeah, so we, um, we asked Maya on a couple months ago. I came across your book, uh, The Unbroken Brain and Audible. I'd never heard of you before. I'd... Uh, briefly heard about addiction as a learning disorder. And I downloaded the book and I listened to it and I was immediately riveted. I think it's a very uh, needed take on what addiction is and especially how we need to approach it in treatment. So that's what we've got Maya on to talk about today. Great. Um, so tell us a little bit, Maya, like the, the crux of this book is uh, kind of moving away from that addiction as a disease, a brain disease model into the addiction as a learning disorder model. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is about? So, I mean, the fundamental thing that goes wrong during addiction is a form of learning. 
Um, and this is not controversial. In fact, when I first started writing about this, I got some emails from neuroscientists saying, this isn't new. Everybody knows this. <laughs> like, you guys have not done a really good job communicating with the public. <laughs> so, um, but basically, in order to be addicted to a drug, you have to learn that it does something for you. You know, it's like if you don't know what is, you can't exactly go out and buy it, right? Yeah. Um, that sounds really stupid and obvious, but this is one of the fundamental reasons why babies can't be addicted. It's, it's really important to understand because, again, you can have physical dependence on a drug without you know, um, even knowing it. Like you could go to hospital, get dependent on opioids, not know that mm -hmm. that's what's happening, go through withdrawal, think you have the flu, go on with your life. You don't know what to crave, so you can't. You can't so that's like, Yeah, so that's one basic thing. Um, a more fundamental thing as well is that if you look at addiction over the course of the lifespan, the vast majority of it starts um, in the teens or early 20s, something like 90% or more. Okay. So if you think about that, something like 75% of all mental illness actually starts uh, before 24. And something very specific is going on during the brain, in the brain during those years. And what is primarily going on is you are learning um, fundamentals to be able to successfully meet and uh, make your way in society, right? Um, so the areas that are basically there to make you fall in love are coming online in a big way. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, these areas can get confused by drugs. What happens in addiction is basically you fall in love with a drug rather than a person. Okay. And when that happens, it redirects your priorities. If mm. you've ever had a friend or been yourself crazy in love, you know how that is. You change your interests, you get obsessed with all kinds of things, you know, you might follow the guy around the world, like you might do all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you just listen to songs about like love songs or addiction songs, they sound pretty similar. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, addicted to love, right? It's basically a system that's designed to make you persist despite negative consequences so that you can mate and reproduce mm. get kind of misguided towards uh, a drug. And so we end Which up... Which can happen, right? Because you, you hear people like, say a friend falls in love with somebody and all the friends are like, this guy's not good news, right? But yeah. the person can't see that. No, exactly. They can't see that this isn't helpful and they keep pursuing the person, the relationship, Similarly to drugs, they can't see that yeah. it is unhealthy. Exactly. And so, I mean, love fundamentally changes your brain, but it doesn't damage your brain. And love is not a disease. So this is just sort of a misguided form of love. And when you see that, you can understand a whole lot of things about it. Very importantly, that love and human connection have a lot to do with why people are vulnerable to addictions. Yeah. Have attachment issues right. or you just feel like you can't connect with people for whatever reason, you are very much at higher risk. And in addiction, there's like about three major causes, right? It ha because the drugs themselves cannot cause addiction on their own. First of all, you've got to learn. But second of all, 80 to 90% of people who try things even like uh, cocaine and heroin um, do not get addicted. So there has to be some other factor in there. And in about two thirds of people, that involves childhood trauma. In about 50% of people, that involves 
mental illness of some sort, um, often depression, ADHD, many of these kinds of things. And people with just sort of outlying temperaments, like if you're extremely risk-taking or you're extremely cautious, both of which, by the way, are the opposite to each other. So there can't be one addictive personality. So, but if, if you are on those extremes, you are at higher risk. And the other final thing, just genuine despair and complete you know, hopelessness. So I don't think I've ever met a person with addiction that doesn't meet at least one of those. And usually they meet, often they meet all three. You know, in, in my instance, the primary driver was um, this outlying temperament that kind of puts me on the autism spectrum. And that, you know, set me up for having difficulties connecting. And then I found that drugs were a way that, that would do that. So, you know, but there's a million different pathways. And so, but if you put this all together, what you realize then is, okay, so something is changing fundamentally in a fundamental system in the brain, but these changes are not brain damage. These changes are just the same kind of changes that you undergo if you fall in love. And the other way we can see that this is the case is that if addiction were caused by drugs changing the brain, you would not be able to have gambling addiction. Mm -hmm. Right. And gambling addiction. Any of the process addictions, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this speaks to, it's something, you know, there's a thing within the person, not just the experience or substance. Mm -hmm. So basically is really good news for people in recovery and for treatment, because it just means that like, we're not dealing with somebody who's going to be permanently damaged for the rest of their life. Now you can damage your brain by like drinking for 40 years, Mm -hmm. you know, bottles of vodka, and you certainly can damage your brain, you know, with excesses of other drugs, but that damage isn't the addiction. That damage side effects, for lack of a better term, of the substances. And you could, I mean, I guess you could, this would be a completely unethical thing to do, but if you force somebody to do that for all that time and they weren't addicted, they would still have the same damage, mm-hmm. but um, they wouldn't be compulsively pursuing the drug despite negative consequences. So when we understand that that is the essence of addiction, right? If you just you know keep going despite punishment, then a lot of other things become clear. Well, first of all, learning from punishment is a fundamental form of learning. If you're not learning from punishment, AKA back to learning disorder, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It also means that our drug policy is completely insane because we're basically using punishment to try to stop a problem defined by its resistance to punishment. Yeah, and and even I think outside of policy, you talk a lot in the book about treatment approaches that miss this whole learning disorder thing. And just since reading your book with the clients that I work with, I've started using this, like let's look at this as a learning disorder, not a fundamental problem with your brain. Um, a brain disease that you may or may not heal from and the amount of compassion they're able to have for themselves and the amount of compassion I feel towards them. And even, you know, our conversations change around this problematic behavior going from why are you doing this to there's a really good reason why you're doing Mm -hmm. this and let's harness that motivation you have and let's find some ways for you to cope that you can be more proud of that aren't so damaging to your life. And it changes the, it, like I've, I've had clients whose complete outlook on their recovery has changed just being able to say there's not something fundamentally wrong with me. I need to yeah. learn ways of coping. 
No, I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's funny because, you know, the disease model was adopted in part because we wanted to destigmatize addiction and say it's not a moral issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then it sort of got conflated with uh, the 12-step model in a way such that it became chronic, progressive, and frequently fatal, and most people will never recover, and you're damaged. Right. Um, and that is really not a very hopeful thing to tell somebody. Right. Or, or it became like with disease model, it became a sickness, right? Like you're sick versus you're not sick. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And I mean, you know, if you want to see, if you want to say, well, okay, like a learning disorder could be a disease, I'm cool with that. Like, it, yeah. right. you know, but I think this is, this describes the condition much better. And it also like accounts for, you know, these paradoxes that we see, which is that, you know, people with addiction very clearly plan to serve their addiction. They are not um, seeming to be, you know, zombies who are, um, you know, involuntarily doing things. They seem to be making very clear choices. And these choices are made under constraints that other people are not experiencing. Mm -hmm. But the idea that there is no choice happening just isn't supported because, like, nobody shoots up in front of the cops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that again in recovery, what I see with uh, my my addict clients is they are some of the most creative, resourceful people I know, and watching them harness that in recovery is awe inspiring. I mean, and I'm like, I'm still, you know, after 30 years or whatever of, of writing about this and experiencing this, um, I'm still awed by um, that creativity and intelligence and compassion that I see in people with addiction and and you know, this is what breaks my heart about the way we treat it because we end up, you know, harming these people, killing them sometimes because we won't provide appropriate care, you know, basically saying we're going to throw you away because you do something we don't like and therefore you're not human anymore. You know, and, and I mean, unfortunately, also the, the other issue that the disease thing has, it has become dehumanizing for a lot of people mm -hmm. because if you are seen as a zombie that has no free will, then we can do whatever we want to you in order to stop you. And if the public sees addiction as an incurable brain disease, well, let's lock these people up because they're hurting other people, right? Mm -hmm. So it ends up supporting the thing that it was supposed to oppose. And it, it really took me a long time to like figure this out because, you know, from the outside, if you say addiction's a disease and the treating is meet the treatment is meeting confession and prayer, people will be like, what? You know? Mm -hmm. but if you're in the treatment world, that is so widely accepted yeah. that you know, people make the argument it's a disease and then propose a very, very moral treatment for it in the next breath. Mm -hmm. And they think they're making a coherent argument for the disease. Mm -hmm. And that does not actually work because if you were to substitute it for any other disease, whether it would be depression or cancer, if you went to a doctor and were told those were the treatments, you'd be like, mm, maybe I'm not in the mainstream <laughs> medical system anymore. Right. right. Whereas if, you know, if we're looking at it as like a learning disorder or a misaligned attachment, right, we learn to attach to this and this is our primary relationship, then going to meetings can make sense in that we're trying to form healthier attachments with actual people versus yes. substances mm -hmm. or experiences. Yeah. And I mean, I think like the, you know, people are always sort of saying that I'm like anti 12 step and I'm not anti 12 step. I'm anti 12 step as treatment. I'm anti paid 12 step. <laughs> well, you, you actually, you actually talk in the book about your experience in 12 steps and how that was 
a really good place for you to start in your recovery, but it was a starting point, not the end all be all. Yeah. And also, I mean, like, you know, um, I don't think anybody can ever know, you know, if, if I had been offered something different, if that would have worked perfectly just as well. Right. And, right. We just don't know. But the, um, the thing that I think is really valuable um, in the 12 steps is the community of support on um, the people there who are really dedicated to, you know, helping other people. And also like the whole moral thing is really helpful to any human being. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you, anybody could do, you know, any human being probably should take a moral inventory, right? Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we could all benefit from making amends and from all of the stuff that's in there, right? Except if you say that this is just to fix the character defects of people with addiction, mm-hmm. then you have said that addiction, that people with addiction are uniquely immoral. And that's when I get mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, and, and rightly so. I, I think, um, you know, in, in the work we do in our, our clinic just outside of Salt Lake City, we actually see a lot of people, we, we primarily work with sexual addiction. We see a lot of people who have gone through other sex addiction programs and we have to do a lot of repair. Uh-huh. We have to do a lot of reducing shame that was instilled through treatment and instilled through stigmatization. And um, to me, that's really, that's really sad that a lot of our first approach with people in recovery is to actually increase their shame and to increase their isolation and their feeling of I'm hopeless. Like, I feel like my clients come to me with plenty of that. I don't, I don't need yeah, to. I mean, anymore. that to me, like, you know, okay, if you want to believe that like hitting bottom and, and having all kinds of terrible things happen to you is the cure for addiction, why are there homeless people who are still addicted? Um, right. you know, why is it the case that if you are a doctor who still has everything um, and you um, start seeking help, you have a much better chance of recovery than somebody who's homeless. Mm-hmm. Which, if the enabling thing is true, would be the opposite. Right. And if, you know, so like the, the idea of hitting bottom is a good narrative device, but it's an absolute terrible medical um, or scientific Criteria. idea, mm-hmm. you know, because it just doesn't work. It can only be defined retrospectively. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, also it supports torturing people with addiction and has done for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. My book, Help at Any Cost, actually um, has a big section in Utah because of the wilderness programs. Mm-hmm. And the, we have a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot of this tough love um, kind of approach. And, you know, it's just like it traumatizes people, even mm-hmm. if they don't even if they weren't traumatized before they went to the place, they're going to be traumatized when they come out. And that makes the, you know, that makes the addiction um, worse often. So, yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, we know basically that if you do the opposite of pretty much every tactic that is used in current treatment, it will work. Now I'm being a little facetious here, but the, (laughs) uh, the, the sad thing is that, you know, people with addiction need to be treated as human beings with dignity and respect. And that if you are kind and welcoming and caring, that has amazing healing properties because people are people. And, and to me, that gets back to the root of the problem in the first place. You know, that we go seeking drugs and we go seeking these process addictions because we're lacking that safe acceptance. From yeah. Human being. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really like, you know, I mean, you can have like chemical reasons like genetic or biological reasons why you're having difficulty with that connection. And, and so you might need medication, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that you are, you know, permanently bad or damaged or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, I think, and this is also like, um, you know, so many people with addiction have ADHD also, right? I think that is a classic learning disorder and it's probably the best model for how we should think about it in the sense that, you know, some people need medication, some people don't, some people don't grow it, some people don't. It's a A healthy diet is always good, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, You know, and and yeah, I mean, and and I think like the, you know, the sex thing, I've never, um, I I haven't written that much about um, sex addiction, but the thing that, you know, the level of shame that our society puts on that and then to heap more on people is just awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so as far as I understand, the unbroken brain represents 25 years of your research in addiction in the brain. What are some of the most surprising things you've learned in your time looking at this and, and reconceptualizing addiction? Sure. It's interesting because I just had to do a lot of unlearning, you know, because pretty much there's one set of myths about addiction that you learn, you know, in high school from dare or something, you know, there's another set you learn like on the street when you're using, and then there's another um, set you learn in treatment. Um, So when you, you know, pretty much over the course of the things, everything was surprising because everything that I had been taught you know, it's chronic, it's progressive, you know, nobody can ever control their use. Um, one's an addict, always an addict, you know, pretty much all of the, all of the stuff, most people don't recover, pretty much all of the stuff that I was taught in rehab is directly contradicted by a lot of evidence. So, you know, I mean, one of the personally embarrassing ones for me was that, you know, when I got into treatment and I wholeheartedly embraced it because I was told this is the only way, you know, I was very, you know, skeptical and critical of uh, methadone. And I thought, oh, it's just replacing vodka with gin and all this kind of nonsense. And it wasn't until I actually looked at the research that I saw, wow, this cuts the death rate in half. Um, And, you know, addiction is not having a substance in your body. Addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. So a lot of the work of the book really was like, putting together all these different pieces from sort of different disciplines. For example, you know, the um, incredibly racist history of our drug laws. Mm -hmm. That has a lot to do with the stigma around addiction. That chapter Um, blew my mind, by the way. (laughs) I mean, it's just like, and and this, we should know this stuff. You know, one of the things that, that I've been thinking a lot about lately is that the, you know, we have created a system in which the only recreational drugs that are ever allowed for all of history in the future are the ones that colonial white men preferred. Mm. Alcohol, tobacco, and dairy. We have <laughs> no way of legalizing anything else because we don't think recreational drug use is ever okay. So yeah. then we put it all into this medical thing. And, you know, we, and we've just ended up with a very bizarre... Um, system and and it cannot be understood without understanding that like oh these laws were passed for racist reasons not because these substances were more dangerous than alcohol and tobacco right um, right when alcohol was banned it was about um, you know prejudice as well because it was fear of immigration and certain immigrant groups and we were going to you know solve that by banning alcohol right. And it also had to do, my understanding is it had to do with some economic reasons, right? Like poor people could make it. And we didn't like that. 
Yeah, no, and I mean the um, the sort of class aspect of this is is very <clears throat> interesting because you know if you're an executive, you can just you know somebody can give you a prescription for Ritalin or Adderall or whatever you know mm -hmm. if you need to like stay up all night working or something, and then they can give you you know um, some kind of sleeping pill to come down and. Like if it's a truck driver, that's horrible, and they're abusing oh, drugs really bad. But if it's an executive, they need to like function, and so we allow, you know. And it's just like no, we are like saying one person's recreational drug use is okay, and another person's is not, just because of class. And this is not to say anything about whether amphetamine actually improves or reduces performance. <laughs> the um, the thing is that we you know we allow for some and we punish others for exactly the same. Well, and what a great macro illustration of what happens on the micro for people every day. Um, just back to the love and attachment and connection. There's all sorts of arbitrary rules in these relationships that don't work and. To me, as I talk to my clients, that's what gets their nervous system tuned to looking for something that's not arbitrary, something okay. that delivers every time. Right. Um, that's a much more reliable attachment mm -hmm. than the people that are available to them. Right. And I mean, that's like, that's one of these things that is, is very, you know, we are not, we are having an opioid problem at this particular time for good reason. You know, mm. opioids are the things that allow oxytocin to bond us to each other. Right. Mm. You know, so oxy, this is why oxytocin doesn't get you high. <laughs> but basically, like, what happens with it is that you, you have your opioid system that is there to make you feel, like, warm, safe, and loved, as well as relieve pain. But emotionally, it's, like, warm, safe, and loved. And normally, you know, when you're a baby, like, that gets wired to your mom as you do all those nice little interactions. And you know, then when you are away from mom, you are upset. And when she's away from you, she's upset. Mm -hmm. um, and or if there's a disturbance in the relationship, you know, so it, it basically wired your stress system to your caregiver. And it also, when you fall in love, that's also what happens. When you get into addiction, that's also what happens, right? And so that, you know, we as a society are so, um, you know, disconnected and unequal and, you know, just confused and despairing about the way things are going. And we have created a society where it is very hard to make lasting attachments and where we have no support for moms and babies and right. all kinds of lack of social support. Um, and then we're surprised when people want to get that from a chemical. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's some of the um, writing and the research in the sex addiction field right now is talking about like sex addiction as emotional regulation, right? Which I think fits nicely with this learning disorder or yeah. the lack of learning about how to regulate our emotions, right? Yeah. If mom is stressed for whatever reason, right, you can name 10 very easily just that's going to put extra stress and pressure on mom. And so her nervous system is already kind of hijacked or, or stressed and yeah. baby's kind of plugging into her yeah. in order to soothe. And actually it just makes baby more dysregulated instead of regulating, right? Then the brain is not learning no. that turning to people is healthy. Yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, or safe or, you know, it helps calm down. It actually makes us more dysregulated. Right. And then if you get abuse into the, in there or neglect, particularly early on, mm -hmm. uh, that wiring is going to be funny. 
and the um, the child is going to be set up to have you know later difficulties. I think right, like the understanding you know how our stress systems are are attuned to each other and how we learn you know the baby can't regulate itself the baby right. has to be regulated by somebody else and mm-hmm. if that's not happening that can lead to very serious problems in the long run on the other hand it's always important to say that like there is this enormous tendency towards health and people who have been through enormous early abuse are sometimes just fine you know um, a lot of the time are just fine most of them do not end up you know um severely dysfunctional thank goodness and so you know figuring out, you know, what it is that allows that, I think is, is also really important. But I think, yeah, with, with addiction for a long time, we've just been like, oh, these are bad people who just want to have fun all the time. And, and, and we don't have to worry about their childhood or their mental health or anything like this. It's like, you know, just punch them enough, they'll stop. Yeah. When, and that's why your, your chapter, uh, Love and Addiction in the book, I, I remember the morning I was on my daily hike and I, I heard it and I put it on repeat because I, I think you're one of a growing number of voices who's talking about how critical understanding attachment is in healing from addiction. So could you speak a little more as to like why that's such an essential concept for people in recovery to understand and to get that? Yeah, sure. I mean, because, you know, really um, our stress systems are designed to be soothed by other people. Like, they're also designed to be like messed up by other people (laughs) Um, (laughs) because, you know, we're a social species and it is critical for us to have other members of our species on our side. Otherwise we're going to die, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in certainly for most of human history. So being attuned to all kinds of social cues has been very critical to, um, you know, survival and obviously also to reproduction in order to, you know, connect with other people, we need to get the stress regulation under control. Um, And in order to be able to do that well, we tend to need good early role models and and connections. Like literally a baby's heart rate and stuff like that does not regulate itself at first Mm -hmm. without the mom or the dad, you know, somebody there. Um, And so the, you know, that, is, you know, we're just utterly dependent creatures. And this is why I'm so glad we don't call addiction dependence anymore because dependence is not a problem. Right. (laughs) We are all interdependent. And we are wired to be connected to each other and to be attuned to each other and to be, you know, happy when other people are happy and sad when other people are sad, you know, and there's all kinds of complexity to that also. But if you, you know, if you cannot connect, and you cannot regulate yourself, then you find something that reliably soothes you. Yeah, you are going to continue to do that. Right. And you know, when you are able to find other passions that can replace that, um, then you should be able to recover. So the the sort of you know the other thing I think about considering love and addiction together is that you know everybody knows how badly breakups suck, mm-hmm. and we've all had the experience of cues triggering our longing for that person that we can't have, you know, if you, if it's a song or, you know, whatever it happens to be, you see their picture or whatever, um, a smell. It's exactly the same thing that people experience with craving with addiction. It's mm-hmm. not alien or inhuman or weird. It's just misdirected. Right. And 
So when, you know, when we see this and we also see that, you know, all of the stigma has been telling people with addiction that you are unlovable and that you don't deserve love. And a lot of people get into addiction in the first place to try to medicate that kind of self-hatred from feeling undeserving of love. And so, again, that's a very important love and addiction connection. And when you can then, you know, uh, heal that and find connection through other people safely, that is, um, you know, critical to a lot of people's recovery. And I think it's really important to realize, though, you know, there's all kinds of different spectrums of social need. Like somebody who's like kind of aspy and introverted may need like one good close friend and just be, you know, on their computer or whatever else they're doing and be perfectly happy. Other people may need to be like out every night. Um, so, you know, the one size fits all thing has to be, you know, like for people on the autism spectrum in particular, like being forced into groups is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, um, you know, you need a certain amount of privacy, a certain amount of like downtime to like mm-hmm. not be with people. But the, you know, that is not to say that your longing and need for connection isn't as deep as anybody else's. It's just that it's different. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I like um, and that I mentioned in the book is this idea of neurodiversity that we're kind of all wired differently. There's no like basic human wiring. There is kind of no neurotypical. Like mm-hmm. we all, you know, because we don't even have enough genes to wire the brain. Like some of it's random, which is partially why identical twins are not exactly identical, right? Mm-hmm. So some of it is just, you know, and so yeah, we're all wired somewhat differently. And, you know, there's certain patterns that it falls into. But, you know, when you're trying to empathize with another person, you have to realize that, like, you know, well, I happen to love the Grateful Dead and they hate it. <laughs> that same experience is, like, really lovely and euphoric for me. And they're like, oh, God, can you turn that damn off? Um, you know, and there's all obviously more serious examples of this. But the, you know, realizing that we are projecting ourselves when we empathize and that the other person could be different is really um, critical. And the more we can see this, the more we can say, okay, like, okay, that baby is like crying a lot and seems like really disturbed by things that shouldn't disturb them. Okay, but they do. (laughs) They're not choosing to be disturbed by things in order to annoy you. They just, they're wired in a way such that those things bother them. You know, they're not being whiny or bossy or whatever. Right. So once we see that from the other perspective, we can sort of also like also figure out like, okay, well, I'm not going to make that kid wear that itchy sweater and that kid will be a much more pleasant kid to be around all day. (laughs) Well, it's one of those I've I've talked with clients and sometimes I find myself talking a lot with clients about this whole like isn't the diversity really what what allows for connection, right? I mean, if two people are exactly alike, one person really isn't necessary. <laughs> That's an interesting way of putting it. Right? Um, and, and with clients, I'll find sometimes that as they start to get into healthier relationships, whether that's, you know, with a sponsor, in a meeting, with dating, whatever that is, they'll start to kind of talk about, I mean, I don't want to impact anybody. Right. I don't I don't want to have an impact on people, which really is a negative impact because we usually are fine if it's a positive impact. Right. But I'll talk to them and say, but but isn't that what we're doing in relationships? Like if I were to get in a relationship with somebody, aren't I agreeing to be impacted? 
Yeah, right? absolutely. And isn't that the beauty of the relationship? Because if I'm not impacted by another person, is that really relational, right? If, if somebody's hurting and I'm like, I'm fine, I don't know what your problem is, then I'm, I'm not really being relational. But when I agree to be relational, I am agreeing to be impacted by you. Good, yeah. bad, ugly, whatever that is, right? And, and that is the beauty and the power of the relationship. But for so many of us, um, we learn that impacting other people does not feel good, right? Whether that was because mom would be depressed and in bed for days, right? Or whatever that was, it just, it didn't feel good. And, and what we learned was don't impact people. Right, right, right. Now, and of course, we're going to turn to other things. Yeah. No. And, you know, obviously you'll be vulnerable if you love, but um, you won't have the joy of it if you mm -hmm. don't. And, you know, that, yeah, that I think we need to be able to, you know, ask for what we need and believe that we deserve it. And in relationship, be able to um, be there when the other person needs it too. And, and, you know, it's mutual and that like, I think it's like, it's very hard for people sometimes to be able to get that after they've been in really dysfunctional relationships and, and, or they've been taught things, you know, as a child about like, you can't have needs or you, um, you know, you have to be perfect or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Maya, we want to thank you for your time. Um, and thank you for coming on to share. The book is the unbroken brain among others. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for your work. Yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Yes, I'm uh, happy to do. And um, it sounds like you guys are doing really good work. I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear you are out there for people and not shaming them in the sexual addiction area. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, to our listeners, we want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I'm learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to, re to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.